welcome to the center. Um, my name is Charles Stang. I'm the director here. And um, I should say that this is a, this is a series um, established by my predecessor, Frank Clooney, these faculty book events. It's an opportunity for the HDS community to gather, not only to celebrate faculty book publications, but more importantly, to, to learn from them uh, by engaging with them both appreciatively and critically. And to that end, we're grateful to our two faculty respondents whose comments will kick off what I'm sure will be a very spirited conversation. Uh, before we begin, may I remind you to please silence your cell phone so we don't, um, we're not uh, privy to your particular ringtone. Um, tells a lot about people, uh, what they choose as their ringtone. Um, really, it does. We've got some really fantastic ones in the community. So before I introduce our two respondents, let me just briefly introduce our author. Um, and I'm going to be I'm going to be very brief with these introductions because I'm sure you really want to hear from them, not me. Um, so Kay Helen Gaston is lecturer on American religious history and ethics here at Harvard Divinity School. Her first book, Imagining Judeo-Christian America: Religion, Secularism, and the Redefinition of Democracy, is the first comprehensive study of Judeo-Christian constructions of American democracy and national identity. You can see copies of the book right over there, along with a review of the book from the New Republic. Helen is currently writing a second book, Part History and Part Ethics, that circles outward from a fascinating intellectual relationship between two leading mid-20th century thinkers who also happen to be brothers, the Christian ethicist and public intellectual Reinhold Niebuhr and his younger brother, the theologian and ethicist H. Richard Niebuhr. Her work on this project builds on a remarkable set of previously unknown letters between the Niebuhr brothers that Helen uh, discovered in the HDS archive in 2008. The first uh, acknowledge our uh, Mark Silk. Mark, thank you so much for coming all the way up uh, for this evening um, from Trinity. Mark graduated from Harvard College in 1972 and earned his PhD in medieval history from this same institution in 1982. He taught at Harvard in the Department of History and Literature for three years, after which he became the editor of the Boston Review. In 1987, he joined the staff of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, where he worked variously as a reporter, editorial writer, and columnist. And in 1996, he became the first director of the Leonard E. Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at Trinity College. And in 1998, founding editor of Religion in the News, a magazine published by the center that examines how the news media handle religious subject matter. In June 2005, he was also named director of the Trinity College Program on Public Values, comprising both the Greenberg Center and a new institute for the study of secularism in society and culture. That's your thing. Um, finally, uh, someone who barely needs introduction here, E.J. Dion. There's E.J. over in the corner. E.J. is visiting professor in religion and political culture here at Harvard Divinity School. He's obviously a distinguished journalist and author, political commentator, and longtime op-ed columnist for the Washington Post. He's also a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute a government professor at Georgetown University, and a frequent commentator on politics for NPR, ABC's This Week, and MSNBC. 
So here's how these evenings uh, play out. We will uh, invite Heelan to say a few words about her book. Then Mark and EJ will respond in turn. I believe all three of them will be speaking from this podium. Um, then we'll, have, um, we'll invite them to turn their chairs around. Uh, Heelan will uh, be given the, the floor first to respond in turn. And then basically we open it up for discussion and questions from the audience. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Elon Gaston. Well, first of all, I want to say a big thank you to our hosts, Charlie Stang and the staff of the Center for the Study of World Religions at HDS for facilitating this event. Um, I also want to thank our commentators, E.J. Dion and Mark Silk, two incredibly insightful analysts of American politics. I'm honored by your willingness to um, engage this book and also deeply appreciative of your scholarly generosity. I want to also say thank you for so many of you coming out this evening on a, what is a cold winter night, <laughs> it turns out. Um, I've benefited so much over the years from colleagues and students here um, and the support and inspiration they've given my work. So Charlie asked me to say a few words at the beginning about the book, um, particularly the question of how it came about and what it aims to do. As I say in the book's acknowledgments, I've been interested in Judeo-Christian discourse almost since I came to political consciousness. It was growing up actually in Tennessee in the 1980s, and I was well aware of the gap in that period of time between the way that Ronald Reagan was using Judeo-Christian rhetoric and the meaning of the term Judeo-Christian in the liberal Protestant UCC church context that I was raised in. I came to see um, during those years that the culture wars of the 70s and 80s actually involved a tug of war over the meaning and future of Judeo-Christian terminology. Uh, and interestingly, there was a moment in that um, time in my life when I actually came to Boston and had um, an experience in the Harvard bookstore of all places. I went um, and was just sort of perusing the shelves and noticed huge um, numbers of books on questions related to, I mean, it was the, the era of bloom, so the closing of the American mind, but also this question about the Grey Wolf Five, the um, turn to multiculturalism basically was very well in evidence in the Harvard bookstore. Um, and I remembered at the time thinking that um, there was a really remarkable lag between the sort of state of the conversation in the town that I was growing up in and the kind of character of the conversation in an urban area like this. Um, so that definitely was a moment when I just kind of made a mental note that what we were talking about and engaging with in Chattanooga was definitely, you know, really years behind the sort of state of the conversation here. So this book speaks to both history and ethics by historicizing a concept that lies at the center of contemporary debates about the character of American democracy. It examines the range of meanings that have been attributed to the term Judeo-Christian in American public life from the 1930s to the present day. In other words, it's a conceptual history of those who have imagined a Judeo-Christian America, rather than a normative attempt on my part to do so. <laughs> um, that said, this book, like all primarily historical works, does take interpretive stands and makes certain predictions. So a good example, and this is something that those of you who've been in my classes would be familiar with, um, is just the sort of sense on my part that 
there is a rather constant slippage in Judeo-Christian discourse between claims about political theory and claims about demographics. And for that reason, the prospect of a Judeo-Christian framework being revitalized on the left seems inconceivable in a moment of such diversity as the one we're in. Um, and that's an important thing, I think, to say um, because otherwise we might have some sort of sense that there are potentially realistic hopes pinned on that question. And for me, I don't really necessarily see that as being something that's very plausible. Um, at the same time, there's no question that Judeo-Christian terminology has more momentum in American public culture and American political life than possibly it's had in my lifetime. Um, it's just momentum that tends to be much more centered on the right. Um, so I think that that is the context for thinking about um, that particular prediction. And we can talk about some of the other predictions that are part and parcel of this book. So without attempting to summarize the book, I want to say a few words about one of my most important findings. It turns out that President Eisenhower, um, who is often very closely associated with the idea of a Judeo-Christian America and the religion, religious revival of the 1950s, um, displayed really deep ambivalence about the term Judeo-Christian. Um, and this stands in rather stark contrast to Ronald Reagan's enthusiastic embrace of the term in the 1980s. It turns out that Reagan was actually the president who has done the most using, using of Judeo-Christian terminology in any context. Um, and that's something that um, might surprise people who are familiar with thinking of the term in the context, particularly of the 40s and 50s. Um, so that's a really striking finding. Um, the other thing that I guess I would say is just that the rise of the right, like one of the things, the rise of a conservative Christian right in this period, in the 70s and 80s, would tend to suggest that the culture wars frame is emerging right at a moment um, when you're seeing the sort of shift from Carter to Reagan and really the rise of neoliberalism, right? And so there's more to be said, I think, about that moment um, and the sorts of ways in which this particular discourse gets involved in really paradigm shifts, a paradigm shift of pretty epic proportions. Um, I want to close here by just saying a few words about an event that took place here in Boston about five days ago that I think um, really helps to dramatize my own purpose in writing this book. Um, ben Shapiro, who's very well known as a conservative commentator and he was a podcaster that really has reached the, of probably the largest number of um, young conservatives under the age of 30 and has increasingly made his way um, into the kind of center of the conservative camp. I mean, he now does a column for the New Republic, whereas he used to be considered a Breitbarter and a kind of alt-right character. Um, but he has um, come to town and spoken at BU to a, a crowd of about 1,500 um, about this question of um, the Judeo-Christian values of the West, which is something that he's published a book about in the last year. Um, in particular, the thing about Shapiro's recent performance is that he essentially said, you know, at this moment, your liberal professors are trying to convince you that democracy is really defined by slavery, right? But then he could define, he says, well, I'm here to tell you that it's defined by freedom and that it's the Judeo-Christian values of the West that maintain that freedom. So he's really setting up an incredibly inflammatory <laughs> kind of binary there. Um, and one of the things that I want to point out about it is just that the logic of that juxtaposition, 
fuels the culture wars in ways that are really antithetical to certain parts of the history of the culture wars. So for instance, the idea that there is nothing in Judeo-Christian terminology that could be used to combat racial oppression, right? No sense that the left, that Judeo-Christian terminology could be used in an anti-slavery or um, sense, right? It erases the uses of, of people like Martin Luther King who actually mobilized with Judeo-Christian terminology to essentially try to convince white Americans that they needed to live according to their stated claims, right? He shamed Americans with Judeo-Christian terminology into beginning to address, and of course insufficiently we now see, right, but beginning to address these questions in more fundamental ways. And so one of the questions that we have to deal with, I think, now is for anyone who is sympathetic with the claim, and I think it's a very sympathetic one, right, the 1619 Project is exciting on this score. We're asking questions about the extent to which slavery is part of democracy and every other aspect of, of American experience. But how is it possible then to respond to someone like a Shapiro without finding yourself in the position of linguistically reifying the term Judeo-Christian? That's the, the thorny bit. Because there are many people, I suspect, in this institution who stopped using Judeo-Christian terminology long ago, but have a sense of indebtedness to the way that Martin Luther King used Judeo-Christian terminology. And so in what ways is it possible right, to begin to like address that problem, or is it only do we just say, oh, that, that's, an, that's old hat. We don't talk about that question anymore. That's just something that people on the right think, but it's not true, right? That's, I think, one of the issues that is sort of front and center at this particular moment politically, and it's a very, very consequential question. So I frame it to you this way just because this is the sort of thing that I thought about in writing this book, and it's something that I continue to engage very deeply with, and I'm excited to hear some of your thoughts about, you know, the question of what can be done about this problem in our sort of political, linguistic, you know, moment. So, thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, I, um, it's sort of a cliche of these occasions to talk about what a pleasure it is to be here. Um, but in my case, it's really true for a special reason. And if you'll indulge me in a bit of uh, autobiography, I'll tell you why. Um, in 1982, I came to the Harvard Divinity School uh, at the invitation of Bill Hutchison uh, because I, was, I had decided, for reasons I won't bore you with, uh, and had a contract to write a book about religion and America since World War II. And having been, as, as Charlie mentioned, a medievalist, I started reading around and I found this odd term, Judeo-Christian. And as philologically trained people you know, tended to do, this seemed like an interesting concept. And so one would start talking about religion in America by doing a bit of philology on that term, or what the Germans call Begriffsgeschichte, the history of a concept. Um, and, and it led me via John Roberts uh, of, of BU, who was teaching in history and literature at the time with me, uh, to, to Bill's door. And Bill said, well, why don't you join our New World, My New World seminar, which deals with religion in America. He 
kid, you obviously need to learn something about religion in America if you're going to write about it. And, um, and, and so I did. And so 37 years after um, the end of World War II, I was in the Sperry Room talking about a paper that I'd written, which became this article, Notes on a Judeo-Christian uh, Tradition in America. Now, 37 years later, I'm back here at the Divinity School uh, to talk about this most gratifying uh, piece of what one might call scholarly supersessionism. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, it is, it's, it's a huge pleasure to, you know, to, 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 to think that something that, you know, was an odd idea that one started with has resulted in a book of this of this caliber, and so as a result, even though David Hollinger is 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 uh, um, Helen's uh, Doctor as the Germans say, her thesis director in this, I like to think of myself as as her Doctor Stiefvater, which is to say <laughs> stepfather. <laughs> Some German speakers in the room, and so I, and so anyway, I flatter myself to to think that's true, and who wouldn't want to be. Um, a stepfather to a book of this of this quality. Um, I, I'll begin, you know, <laughs> my serious remarks by saying that that um, you know a lot has happened in 37 years, and and it also as, as so as 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 is necessary in 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 doing history writing. Uh, you have to look at at the you look at the world differently uh, as the generations pass. Um, and in addition, it matters where you're coming from. Where I was coming from, uh, you know, as, as a young uh, Jewish man looking at this stuff was very much in the mode of here is this term not very much liked in the Jewish community uh, and in fact, in fact, um, attacked by especially Arthur Cohen and the myth of the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, which turns out to have you know, politically started as a way for both Jews and Christians to kind of defend Jews against fascism and against anti-Semitism in the 30s. Um, that was a very interesting story to me. And so necessarily, or, or because of that, the, the pluralist side of the story, the inclusive side of the Judeo-Christian story was most striking to me. For Helan, growing up in East Tennessee amidst, one might say, fundamentalists, <laughs> in the, where, where else do they come from but East Tennessee, right? Um, uh, and, 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 and also, in the context of the um, taking over of this term by, the, by religious conservatives, religious Protestants, conservative Protestants in particular, evangelicals, um, uh, really has seen this uh, in a different way. And, and, and I think um, that, that, that those two approaches really um, define the heart of the book's analysis, uh, the, the exceptionalist view and the pluralist view of Judeo-Christian language. Now, if I can uh, be permitted, you know, a slight uh, bit of concern, I, I will say that I am a bit ambivalent about this dichotomy um, as a way of, of categorizing civilizational reality 
Judeo-Christian language has always been employed in, a, in an adversarial, or one might uh, in a Hegelian mode call a dialectical way, whether the antithesis is Hellenism or fascism or totalitarianism or communism or secularism or secular humanism. Um, it, 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 it has that dialectic, uh, dialectical quality. Um, and, but having said that, uh, um, you know, it's, it's certain from the book explicitly at the beginning and at the end that Helen is well aware uh, of this. Um, at the outset, she makes a point of saying that she's preparing uh, a, a pair of ideal types which in, in, in the real American world uh, often appear in, in mixed and nuanced forms. And in the conclusion, she notes how Judeo-Christian language is at once about inclusion and exclusion. And I think that's absolutely the case. Um, and, and moreover, there's no question, but in the incredible wealth of instantiations that she discusses in this, in this very rich book, um, there are figures who are more pluralistic and there are figures who are more uh, exceptionalist in their, in their approach. And, and so it, 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 you know, it works. Um, and, and the key virtue, I think, of this analytic approach uh, is that it provides a way to connect mid-20th century uh, usage uh, conceived in the lead-up to World War II and brought to fr fruition during the Cold War um, with usage during the culture wars of the past few decades. Um, in so doing, she succeeds in showing how the early discourse about religion and America feeds into the latter or is picked up, pieces of it picked up in the latter. Um, it's a signal accomplishment of the book uh, that, that it exposes the extent to which the earlier period uh, is actually taken up with combating secularism and strong church-state separationism. That's part of the story, as she notes, and, is, and, and, and absolutely correctly, um, tends to be overlooked in the, in the, in the literature. Uh, because we're you know, swept away by consensus and images of everyone going to church and so on. Um, uh, but even, even as the Supreme Court was ramping up uh, you know, in, in its uh, First Amendment jurisprudence, uh, you had um, Reinhold Niebuhr himself uh, expressing reservations about, about the degree of separation. Uh, and, and that's really an important, an important element of, of the story of, of American thought in the post-war world that, that needs lifting up and, and, is, and, and, and happens here. Um, above all, uh, Helen's able to show how the nascent religious right of the early 1980s gloms onto a piece of Judeo-Christian rhetoric and turns it to its own uh, exceptionalist purposes. It really is the best account of how that of how that works uh, that we have, and um, and in this day and age, when when religious conservatives have all but taken sole possession of Judeo-Christian in public discourse, uh, this is a story of critical historiographical importance. Um, the book is, uh, in addition, rich in, in many and varied ways. I'll call attention to just a few of them. Uh, three, they do have to do with presidents. We tend to be thinking a lot about 
presidents these days, so why not? Um, uh, as she just mentioned, uh, there is this subtle uh, account of, of Dwight Eisenhower, who is not often regarded with great subtlety by commentators, uh, and in this regard, specifically not. Um, Will Herberg did Ike a disservice by sort of truncating the very interesting remark that he makes before he becomes president, just before, uh, and I don't care what it is, um, as if uh, Ike didn't, didn't care what your religion is. Um, but, but, but the point of the extended remark, as some of you will know, um, was that it was our, our system of government depends on a deep belief, a religious belief, commitment to the equality of all people. Um, if you don't have a sense of equality, you're going to have trouble with democracy. That's a strong proposition. It's, it's debatable, but it's not idiotic. It's not, it's not stupid. And, and indeed, Eisenhower had his own, as, as Helen shows, his, his own ambivalence about about Judeo-Christian at the very time when it sort of achieves a kind of control over discourse about what America is along with, with the tri-faith thing. So the Eisenhower part is, uh, section is, is terrific. I think what Helen has to say about Jimmy Carter moving as a Southern Baptist into the sort of world of recognizing pluralism is very interesting and important as well. Uh, it is always important to signal George W. Bush's um, resistance for all of, for all of the, the things that one can say about George W. Bush, uh, his resistance to, um, to having in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 uh, this turn into a holy war against, against Islam. Um, that's, an, that's an important story which, which she tells. Uh, let me conclude then um, with something about the current state of affairs. Uh, I think even though, um, well, the astonishing thing about Donald Trump is that here's somebody who's grown up in, in this very period, in New York, in Will Herbert's New York, um, in, the, in the midst of all of the language and rhetoric of post-war America, and seems to have absorbed or internalized none of it. I mean, absolutely incapable on his own terms of, of delivering, I mean, I'm not saying he can't read a text and the couple of references to Judeo-Christian that he makes, I'm sure was written by, but in any kind of extemporaneous form, his ability to deliver the American pieties is zero. I mean, how that happens to somebody who grows up, in this, it's as if he were. So, um, so I think that's, that's an interesting fact. Um, Helen thinks that there is more to the Judeo-Christian story in the American public square as distinct from academic circles. We might have a word about that afterwards. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that if it does, um, one, one place to look for it as, a, as an interesting uh, sort of uh, new way of, of using the language is in the in the in 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 the expressions, the the, the writings of of Steve Bannon, uh, Trump's sometimes chief strategist, uh, who spent his time since leaving the White House 
uh, trying to gin up a, a war of civilizations on behalf of what he calls the Judeo-Christian West. Um, and, and I would say, while that's partly anti-Muslim, what, what really activates uh, Bannon's conception is a, is a sort of um, European-American effort to deal with China and the rest of East Asia. That's how he, his clash of civilization works. This is a, a, a bit of a new twist uh, to Judeo-Christian language, and I think that, that, um, that one way to explore some of, this, of this, this kind of locution can be found actually outside of America, in Europe, in France, uh, in Italy, um, beyond the scope of this book. I wouldn't, <laughs> it is not a criticism. Um, and let me say finally, um, just, just if we are going to answer Ben Shapiro in the context of um, slavery and freedom, uh, it seems to me that one approach, which will probably satisfy no one exactly, but, but core to the idea, to the most sophisticated, I would say, ideas about the the meaning of the Judeo-Christian tradition beyond as a mere political shibboleth or, or even mere inclusion is, does come out of, out of Niborian neo-orthodoxy and which, which lifts up, valorizes uh, the tradition of prophetic, of the prophetic elocution. And I think anyone looking at, 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 at Martin Luther King Jr., anyone looking at that period of the civil rights of the sort of trying to lay the ghost of slavery, um, not that we've succeeded, has, should or is, is well advised to consider that prophetic tradition as the join between those two pieces of the American past. So I'll leave it at that and turn it over to EJ. So before I begin, I want to say that it was very cool to see Helen historicize my old friend Mark Silk uh, in her book. I just want to, he has, I want to just show you why he is so deeply qualified to be a respondent uh, on this book. Right at the beginning, uh, in the years since Mark Silk published his groundbreaking 1984 article, Notes on the Judeo-Christian Tradition in America, which outlined uh, some of the tensions explored in greater depth here. Several other historians have emphasized liberal anti-fascist and anti-anti-Semitic anti uses of Judeo-Christian discourse. And then she goes on to say, um, on all these levels, the meanings and uses of Judeo-Christian were contested from the discourse's very inception, an insight of Silk's that no subsequent interpreter has systematically developed. So we had to wait 35 years for someone to do a serious job of explicating Mark Silk. Uh, so uh, Helen is a Silkian, uh, and uh, I am a Gastonian myself. Um, I want to also, just because Mark uh, mentioned uh, uh, Steve Bannon, I had him in my notes, and I think it is really important to understand the roots of Bannonism in the Crusades, and I'm not making that up. Bannon is very committed to that, and it's a really good illustration of the difficulties that this term Judeo-Christian uh, is, the difficulties it faced. He gave a speech to a Catholic traditionalist group in Rome 
in 2014 uh, where he said the Judeo-Christian West is in crisis. He called for a return of the, quotes, church militant who will fight for our beliefs against this new barbarity which, which threatens to completely eradicate everything that we've been bequeathed over the last 2,000. Then he quickly adds 2,500 uh, years. Uh, Bannon pointed to the long history of Judeo-Christian struggle against Islam and he reached back to praise forefathers who defeated Islam on the battlefield and, quotes, kept it out of the world, whether it was at Vienna or Tours or other places. Uh, so he was reaching back to the 8th century to talk about uh, contemporary politics. That is a, a very useful optic on what has happened to this term. But I want to say I'm here because Helen is awesome, and it was one of the, my very first friends when I first started uh, teaching uh, here, and I'll explain where we bonded. Um, but I want to say first that this is really a great book, and its title, which is totally appropriate, undersells it. Um, my wife um, once said to me, you're great at writing books, but uh, you're good at writing books, but what you're great at is shameless self-promotion. <laughs> and so what I want to do is, Helen is not a self-promoter, so I want to do some of that for her. Um, uh, first, this book, I think, should not simply be read as a history of the Judeo-Christian idea. It really is um, a history of the interaction between religion and politics in our country uh, since the 1930s. Um, and I think it's really useful that way because we have a tendency, you know, every generation sort of sees its own time as most important and kind of forgets the past. And we have a, a tendency to see all of our conflicts uh, over religion, either dating back uh, to the rise of the Christian right in the 1970s and 1980s, or more recently, uh, the, um, the decision of the vast majority of the white evangelical community to unite behind Donald Trump. This book is spectacular in showing how these culture wars have very, very deep roots uh, in many of the conflicts she describes. To quote Helen, to understand our own culture wars, we must turn back to earlier rounds of conflict, above all those of the supposedly homogeneous consensus-oriented 1950s. When we survey that terrain through the lens of Judeo-Christian terminology, a new vision of post-war America, riven by deep conflicts, comes into view. Pitched battles over the relationship between religion and democracy raged within the apparent consensus fostered by the widespread use of Judeo-Christian language during World War II and the early Cold War years. Um, so I think this book is wonderful to read, to understand our time, and to look back to the past. You learn, um, you know, even if you think you know that period, you learn a lot of things. Anybody in this room ever hear of Frasco? Um, sounds like a soft drink. Um, Helen tells the story of Frasco, which is the foundation for religious action in the social and civil order. Um, Frasco was, in a way, in competition with, uh, sometimes in conflict with, the better-known organization, the National Conference of uh, Christians and Jews. Um, and one of the things Helen uh, points out um, is, first, uh, 
um, how deeply Catholic that name is and how important um, the, uh, the Judeo-Christian idea was for the inclusion of Catholics, but it's a particularly conservative brand of Catholicism that often expressed itself. Um, the other thing I think she shows is kind of the ambiguity of liberal Catholicism in that period, which had some very, very progressive sides connected to social justice, but also some very conservative sides in the backlash against secularism, um, which uh, is something that just uh, jumps out at this. She um, uh, talks a lot about um, our hero, Reinhold Niebuhr, whom I'm going to get to in a moment, um, and some of the battles he had in this period and his own evolution uh, on the Judeo-Christian uh, idea, he became more and more skeptical of it over time. He became worried about its use to battle secularism. This is not a new fight. This goes back, uh, and Helen describes it so well, this goes back to the 40s and 50s. Um, and Niebuhr had some real second thoughts about this and really did not want over time to accept the idea that democracy could only be rooted in a Judeo-Christian tradition. He thought it also had secular uh, roots as well and he wanted to honor those. I, one of the questions I have for Helen is if she could develop the, evol the evolution in Niebuhr's own thought about this because it really, he moves um, in, a, uh, in a new direction. Um, uh, so, Heel and I bonded over Niebuhr. Uh, Heelan's other has a side job. She's president of the Reinhold, or, 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 or oh, former president of the Reinhold Niebuhr Society. And I was thinking about Niebuhr and you. Um, I was thinking you were Nieburian in at least three ways. Um, in one way, you know, a couple of my favorite Niebuhr aphorisms. Niebuhr was a great uh, aphorist. Um, uh, Niebuhr said, we must see the error in our own truth and the truth in our opponent's error, um, which is actually good advice uh, to us all. And I think that's reflected in this book in um, Helan's capacity uh, to explain and elaborate on points of view that I'm quite sure she disagrees with rather passionately. And there's a passage in the book that I think reflects this, um, you know, this this it's not a flaccid or flabby balance. It's like a, a rigorous kind of balance. Um, she writes, the culture wars narrative teaches media consumers and scholars of religion, for that matter, uh, a host of false lessons. Among the most damaging are its implications that all theologically conservative Christians are socially conservative and that all cosmopolitan urbanites are militant secularizers, avowed atheists who have no religious identities, lack robust ethical commitments, and want to stamp out all forms of religion. I just really loved that warning passage to us. Um, a second um, Niebuhr uh, aphorism that I've always loved that many of you know, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. Man's capacity for injustice makes democracy necessary. Um, Helen is a small d Democrat and that runs through this whole um, account. Um, but like Niebuhr, she understands uh, democracy's ambiguities and complexities. Um, and that gets us to back 
to the kind of origin story of uh, the Judeo-Christian idea. She is really good at explaining that you can't understand this idea without understanding Nazis, communists, and Protestants. And my apologies for putting Protestants in the same box, um, because I don't mean it in that way, in any way. Um, but the first is that there, there is, if you will, the positive and broadly liberal side of Judeo-Christian, which is it really was, as um, the traditional commentators suggest, in part an honest and honorable reaction to Nazism and a real effort to mark the inclusion of Jews as part of American life. Um, and it was an extremely useful concept uh, in that way. Um, you know, it, it advanced tolerance in many respects, but not all uh, respects. At the same time, um, you can't understand the term without understanding the Cold War. Um, and one of the great things about this book is that it really puts this story uh, in the context of Cold War politics. And there really was a very strong sense um, at the time uh, that the Judeo-Christian tradition undergirded democracy and was facing up to godless uh, communism. I always like to tell people about when I was in grade school, Catholic grade school, there was a uh, comic book series called Treasure Chest. Uh, and they had, uh, a, they had a series in the, in the comic um, about what would happen to the United States if the communists took over. And they showed a classroom. Uh, and the, the American flag had the stars and stripes replaced. I mean, it had the, had the stripes, but the stars were replaced by a, sicker, a, hammer, a hammer and sickle. And the teacher was pointing to a blackboard, and the only words on the blackboard were, there is no God. Um, and I told the students in my other class that a friend of mine and I talked about this very recently. He was in a different Catholic school, read the same comic book, and to this day he's frightened to death about that picture that he too saw in Treasure Chest uh, comics. And there was a lot of that going on uh, in the sort of... Uh, Judeo-Christian idea. But the third reason, the reason I mentioned Protestants, um, and again, Helen is very, very good on this, um, is I think you have to understand this idea uh, in the context of the cultural disestablishment of Protestantism uh, in the United States. And we can talk about when you date that. Um, you know, I think it began falling apart when Al Smith ran for president, especially when Roosevelt was elected on the basis of a coalition that depended very much on urban Catholics uh, and Jews. It was a very broad coalition, so it included white Southern Baptists, but also uh, urban Protestants and Jews. And I think it was uh, you know, definitively um, disestablished in the 1960s and 1970s. I think the court decision on prescribed prayer in public schools was particularly important because the prescribed prayer was, even when it was completely neutral, was Protestant um, in spirit. And that, by the way, is um, why uh, is how I at least understand the rise of the religious right, at least in part, which is I think it's a backlash against the disestablishment of uh, Protestantism. Um, I want to I want to close um, by talking uh, by well oh one other thing you know I want to promote Helen's book. Um, these days, every book has to say something about Donald Trump, uh, and so I do want to share 
your um, very insightful take on our president. Uh, Helen writes, abroad as at home, Trump sees the world in terms of winners and losers. Despite his affinity for clash of civilizations thinkers, such, uh, such as his former advisor Steve Bannon, an economic and political nationalist, Trump seems to view countries largely according to their desirability as resort locations and to trace their conditions to the personal qualities of either their citizens or their leaders. Meanwhile, he treats Islam as a violent anarchic force, not as an implicitly totalitarian faith, and likewise views immigrant groups through the lenses of criminality and economic productivity. Um, in short, Trump fixates mainly on social differences not religious ones. I'd like you to talk about and even defend uh, that proposition, given that uh, Trump, while that I, I broadly think you're right, uh, Trump is the guy who uh, put in the Muslim ban, which was explicitly religious, and that it, it can fit within that term, but I think it's, um, it's something worth uh, uh, discussing. Um, there's, uh, so I just want to close with a couple of observations about the end of the book, and two, I want to just throw back at Helen two questions she asks um, in her text that I think um, is very good. Uh, first, um, I appreciate what you write about the new effort to create the next generation of Judeo-Christian, that term, the new term is Abrahamic. Um, it's an effort to include Muslims, so then it becomes Catholic, Protestants, Jews, and Muslims, and, and you write a number of factors uh, would seem to militate against the hope that some interfaith activists and scholars, uh, of some interfaith activists and scholars, that the term Abrahamic will come to perform the same integrative function that Judeo-Christian did in post-war America. Um, and you go on to talk about not only the fraught uh, nature of Western relations with Islam at this moment, um, but also the fact that that term is not inclusive of Sikhs, it's not inclusive of Buddhists, it's not inclusive of Hindus. It's a, it's a problematic term in a lot of ways, and yet people are uh, people of, I, I think of good faith are trying to grab it as to to embody what is best in the original uh, Judeo-Christian idea. Um, uh, secondly. Um, you really focus on how uh, the Judeo-Christian idea would really have been impossible in some ways absent the Cold War, that the Cold War is what really gave it life. And so you ask um, these two questions. Uh, you ask, can people know who they are as members of national communities or even as human beings for that matter without delineating who they are not? That is a really interesting philosophical question, uh, but it's also a very interesting practical question for our moment. Um, you uh, go on to ask, does identity formation always require a foreign outsider, an enemy within a threatening other? Um, the, the, I, I was haunted by those questions at the end um, because on the one hand, they're the right questions for you to ask about the Judeo-Christian idea and what, what would come after. Um, but we are now haunted as a country by a very strong tendency to talk a lot about the other. Uh, it is a strong tendency that doesn't even have the leavening 
of the, the lighter side, if you will, of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so despite your brilliantly uh, critical and um, uh, critical and almost, uh, if I could say, deconstruction uh, of the Judeo-Christian idea, um, I, I'm reminded of the folk singer Joni Mitchell's line, which comes to me a lot these days. Uh, Joni Mitchell famously saying, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Uh, and in some ways, for all its flaws, the spirit of the Judeo-Christian tradition may be better uh, than many of the lines of thinking uh, and reacting that we face today. But bless you for writing this book. Thank you so much. Well, um, so let me just say a few words in response to your comments. I appreciate um, so much your thoughts about this book um, and the time that you took to engage it. I, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think that just speaking directly to this question about the sort of deconstructive dimension of this book, um, one of the things that I was who, you know, so for me, like, yes, I mean, there's no question that I'm offering a challenge to this discourse. But that challenge has been offered, I mean, again and again and again by countless commentators since the 70s and 80s. Um, and anyone that um, is concerned about questions of inclusivity regarding the term, you know, is left with, you know, a sense of the limits of the term on that score. And so I really have just sort of felt that it's something that needed, you know, wider, um, wider engagement. And, and I guess that's one of the reasons why it concerns me the prospect that people will say, oh, you know, we, we, we outgrew that long ago. That's not worth talking about, thinking about, asking questions about. At a moment when we have Ben Shapiro coming to Boston and trying to give us a very kind of, you know, stark account of the state of play in American political discourse presently. So my hope is that the book will encourage people to get in there and look at the range of different kinds of engagements that they can have with the story that I'm telling. Could I, could I ask a question, which is one of the things that puzzled, not puzzled, but that I sort of turned around in my mind is, there are ways in which there were deeply, if you will, liberal uses of this term. And that there were the, both the, the, the motivations of many of the people who used it were broadly liberal and inclusive. And, um, the, the, and, and it was in some sense, um, theoretically liberal because it was trying to say we are broader and accept that we are a broader country than people used to think. It was an anti-nativist term, sure. really, and it's uh, you know because of Catholic and Jewish immigration. Um, yet there are other ways when I read in parts of the book where, um, in particular, its use uh, to battle secularism and the fact that it excluded Islam, and it was really interesting, as Mark said, that Ike Eisenhower was uncomfortable with it, partly because of that, yes. uh, which is something I would never have imagined, uh, that Ike really, when he heard Judeo-Christian, he resisted it because it didn't include Muslims, and he was worried about our policy in the Middle East, and, and so on. And so you could make a wholly different argument that the roots of the religious right were far more in this idea than we might think how how do the how can this concept hold these two ideas and tensions uh, how, how how does this tension work out mm -hmm. i mean in a way that's the drama of the whole book definitely 
Yeah. And the sense that it's really a tension that's with us. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that is so shocking to me is just how consistent these dynamics are. Right. Um, so I, I think it's the kind of book where once someone reads it, they have a different kind of walking around sense inside of American political discourse. And that's my hope. I mean, this is something that I, um, I just, I don't think we're going to find solutions to this um, moment in our politics without starting to look more closely at the ways in which people are talking past one another, um, and the ways in which they're playing tug of war with concepts, filling concepts with different content, moving on. I mean, this is, you know, so much a part of what it is to be, you know, in political um, discourse in this country. I mean, it's, you know, to the point where you have to get a voter guide to figure out, like, what, why the language of a particular law that someone's trying to pass, it, you know, how it, how it is the exact opposite of what it says it is. Right, that's the sort of terrain we're in, right? And so if that's the case, then attention to language, right, is absolutely critical part of coming to terms with what a democracy can even be. Just the established scholar, much, much revered in this volume. I want to <laughs> jump in. Well, I, you know, I think there's a point in the book where you talk about what we call the rise of the nuns that is the people of no religion, not the Catholic sisters. And, and I, I do think that um, the current moment is one uh, very much of religion and irreligion. Um, in, in that sense, Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic um, have been sort of superseded by uh, a kind of discourse of you know, certainly on the right of, you know, religious liberty as construed in, in a maximalist or almost, almost spiritual libertarian way. Um, and, and I'm not sure, um, I mean, it, it raises some complicated questions for, for any religious descriptor that claims to be inclusive. And, and the book sort of gestures in that direction, but I think there's still, um, I, I need to think about that some more. <laughs> so, um. Could I ask one more question uh, before I, I want to, I think we should get the audience in, but Absolutely. I was fascinated by your treatment of John Courtney Murray, and I want you to talk about, for those of you who don't know Murray's work, Murray was an extremely important Catholic thinker uh, who really, in many ways, laid the groundwork for the Catholic Church's in a way, switching sides on issues like democracy and religious liberty at Vatican II. Um, and his ideas were condemned earlier on um, by more of a certain kind of traditionalist conservative Catholic. Vatican was uneasy with them, and they kind of became the dominant thread in the church. What's fascinating about Murray, and this is what I'd love you to talk about, is he was as in, a, in practical terms, the, uh, he opened the way for a kind of liberalism and was a liberal Catholic, yet there was something still very deeply traditional and conservative about his conceptions and his roots of natural law. And now, all these years later, 50 years later, many conservatives use Murray's natural law idea 
ideas for their own purposes. Could you just talk a little about Murray? Because sure. he is, I think, rightly really important, or maybe he just loomed large for me because yeah. uh, I'm a liberal Catholic. But <laughs> Murray is quite fascinating. I mean, one thing that I noticed actually as a fairly young graduate student working on these questions is that there were, you know, frequently papers about civil religion or about Murray or about you know, Niebuhr, Blanchard, or, you know, various characters that were part of this sort of welter of debates around democracy in the 40s and 50s, and it was almost like it was the Bermuda Triangle. You would see someone pop at a conference, they'd give a paper, and you'd be like, okay, like, I'm ready for the dissertation, and they'd just disappear, <laughs> right? And so it was like there was pretty much a paper at every conference that you'd go to, but it was like, it was like hard to, like, crack through to something that seemed deeper, that seemed new, because of the way in which these discourses reproduce themselves so powerfully that you can't find a place of purchase. And so I'm really proud of the fact, actually, that Murray is one of these characters who I think appears in very like new ways in this book. There are aspects of Murray's um, career that are um, really highlighted in part by his relationship with the journalist Emmett Hughes and the role that Emmett Hughes played in editing um, in editing the speeches of Eisenhower. So uh, let me just say that the the key with Murray, I think, is that um, on the one hand, he's essentially like un like remaking in a very brilliant way, questioning the, the sort of standing position of the Catholic Church on, um, on the church-state question and the sort of compatibility of Catholicism and liberalism. Um, and he does this um, very convincingly and in ways that ultimately become part of the Second Vatican Council's, um, you know, um, documents on religious um, liberty. Um, but the the really important thing about Murray in the same period is that his defense of the natural law causes him to um, you know, really um, sort of push outward for a natural law vision that he sees as a real competitor to a kind of tri-faith or Judeo-Christian image. And so like many Catholics of his day, he was very reticent to use Judeo-Christian terminology um, and um, felt that it might really sort of signal a kind of um, you know, prophetic alliance between um, liberal Protestants and Jews that had much earlier roots and that might actually be somewhat anti-Catholic. Right? And so he's um, trying to sort of negotiate all of this, and his We Hold These Truths is in many respects a, um, a sort of alternative to the vision that the NCCJ is putting forward. Um, and so I think um, the story that gets told here, though, is one of Emmett Hughes, who is this young friend of Murray's. They're hanging out together all the time with like the Looses. They're um, in close proximity to Eisenhower um, because of Hughes's job as a speechwriter. Um, and they are, um, both traditionalists, in a sense. Um, Hughes is the person that goes to find the cab driver who was driving the cab the day that Murray um, died of a heart attack in the back of that New York City cab. He was a d very, very close friend of Murray's. And so, you know, just looking closely at that relationship and the sorts of um, ambivalences that were part of their engagement with Emmett Hughes's role and you know, it really gives us a different portrait of this period. It does not give us a, I mean, Emmett Hughes is in there slashing out every like mention of kind of Protestant individualism that he finds in the Eisenhower speeches and moving things in a, a sort of more kind of liberal Catholic direction. And that's a real counterweight narrative to some, you know, to the brilliant book of Kevin Cruz that tries to, you know, make the case for the idea that there are lots of forces pushing Eisenhower in the direction of a kind of conservative Protestant view of the world. So it's a fascinating just, Yeah, just to add yeah. one, quick point. I think one of the difficulties of sort of dealing with Murray now is that he is absolutely, you know, from a, from a sort of progressive or, you know, Vatican II Catholic standpoint, the, a hero. He's 
rightly celebrated, his suppression by the Vatican is, is rightly lamented. And, and so he's on the side of the angels, and particularly the larger project of trying to uh, make religious liberty as defined in the, in the U.S. sort of system uh, palatable for, for Catholics. On the other hand, the story of natural law that he has to tell about the framers being in effect you know, Thomist natural law philosophers just doesn't hold up. So that from the standpoint of history of ideas, it's a big problem. So, so on well, the one hand- Isn't it fair to argue, I, I, I'm not sure it's my view, but I, you know, what the heck, I'm gonna defend Murray's view. Um, isn't it fair to argue that there were certain natural rights, natural law ideas inherent in the framers? I mean, he wasn't making it all up. He no, wasn't no. turning them into Thomists exactly. Um, right, but, or, right, but but I think, but I think it's a problem if you try to go from you know the Jesuit thinkers like you know, Bellarmine and stuff to Thomas Jefferson and Locke and say, oh well, they're all doing the same thing, so it's okay for us. I mean, one has to be careful about that, and and I think that means that as a as a pure sort of conveyor of the history of ideas, he's. You, you know, there's a lot of eyebrows to be raised. And so he's important as a cultural figure and as somebody working hard to move his religious tradition into the position that they're going to adopt in, at, at Vatican II. Right, and Richard John Newhouse and some of the first things folks have actually used Murray in, you know, over the last decade or Which so. Which tells you something. Conservative, yeah, <laughs> for, for conservative purposes. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm taking both sides of the okay. argument here. And, Please. So this is a question. First of all, I for, forgive me if this is in your book or, Mark, in your seminal article. <laughs> um, I'm wondering to what degree this, this sort of the waxing and waning of the, the Judeo-Christian category can be told um, not uh, in terms of a sort of um, American history, but sort of international history. So, And I guess the invitation there is thinking about um, Eisenhower and Reagan. And I thought, oh, well, right, Eisenhower had the Suez crisis. Reagan has uh, Israel's invasion of Lebanon. That, is that some way of thinking about their, how they're thinking through the possibility of the Judeo-Christian? Um, and then it led me also to think of, because we're, we're constellating the Judeo-Christian and the Abrahamic uh, together, I thought in, with Reagan, you have this this moment with the Iranian Revolution, where you could very easily demonize uh, Islam, and then you could see a kind of retrenchment of a sort of Judeo-Christian rhetoric. At the same time, as and here I am, I'll confess I was a child of a Republican household in the Midwest, which was a Reagan-worshipping household, during which, in the 80s, there was a kind of cult of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And so that was a moment where there was a strange, nascent, Abrahamic r rhetoric in the 80s too, which goes to, I think, EJ's point about this being actually about a kind of uh, godliness versus god godlessness rhetoric. So, and we could go on and talk about, you know, um, uh, George W. Bush and his, his decision not to embrace the full clash of civilizations model that was ready to hand. To what degree are these, is, is this a discourse that's driving the, the bus or is it simply responding to certain 
geopolitical events. Um, I mean, it's obviously not, it's not an either or there, but I'm just wondering if you could reflect, uh, Heal and all of you on the sort of, the, the international frame for thinking about this storyline. Definitely. Um, well, it's definitely a both and, I think. Um, you know, and it's interesting, like one of the things over the years that has been really striking to me is just that some of the most engaged um, interest in this work has come from scholars of international relations. Um, and particularly, I mean, I think the work partially of, of someone like an Andrew Preston with his, you know, massive history, this um, Sword in the Spirit, the Shield of Faith, um, which looks at um, religious dynamics in American foreign policy, um, and U.S. foreign relations over a vast swath of time. Um, I think there's been tremendous interest in the question of, you know, what does it mean to say that the term Judeo-Christian is becoming animated in the context of the Cold War? What does it mean that someone like Reagan is, you know, essentially, um, you know, engaged in that same Cold War discourse, but at sort of the tail end of this period instead of at the origin point? How does that dovetail with, um, you know, the, the history of neoliberalism globally, like all of these questions deserve a lot more scrutiny. And I think um, the thing that you see again and again, and this is true internationally as much as it is um, nationally, is just that, that there are sort of moments where you see in a discourse kind of what is really just sort of the realm of the politically possible. So a good example we were talking about earlier today um, is the fact that Carter himself is interested in the figure of Abraham, right? He writes this book, The Blood of Abraham, like is thinking about like the Abrahamic, right, in relation to um, the situation um, in the Middle East in the context of the late 70s, right? And that's an abiding interest that he carries forward, um, but it's one that, um, you know, sort of blips on the radar screen at this moment. It looks like there's going to be a cultural moment for that terminology. And then it happens again in the context of the sort of post 9-11 years, that there's a moment when, you know, right even, right even before 9-11, like one of the things that the book does is it shows that there's certain moments where it, there seems to be momentum developing behind the concept of the Abrahamic, and then something kind of turns that momentum or seems to structurally impede it, right? Um, and so, you know, I think international events have a profound impact Right? I mean, there's no question um, that they're, you know, weaving in and out of the story at various different points. Um, and the realm of the politically possible is sort of being conditioned by them, but they're also, you know, in the process of creating um, worlds beyond the borders of this country. And that are, you know, I mean, that's to me the most exciting thing for my students, right, about um, engaging this book and thinking about their own future work. I've got so many papers, you know, going currently, you know, on questions about, you know, how this discourse works in other contexts, how it works in terms of perception from various different kinds of perspectives, <laughs> right? What is going on in terms of its like sort of ability to reach out and do work in the world? Um, and, you know, I think it's a story that's been a global story. I mean, if you think about Eisenhower, right? Think about just basics of things like the Bandung Conference in the mid 50s, the sort of recognition that decolonization is a referendum on democracy in the way that like Mary Duziak writes about Cold War civil rights, right? Are decolonizing nations going to choose democracy or communism? Are they gonna look at the civil rights situation in this country and say, oh, this is a system that works for us? Or are they gonna say, this is not good, <laughs> right? And so the, the sort of spotlight of the world on that question Right, I mean that's a that's a you know a, that's one of the biggest reasons why Eisenhower is saying, you know, I don't know, 
right? His brother, meanwhile, keeps using Judeo-Christian formulations because he's, you know, inside of academic circles that are not as international as the ones that Dwight Eisenhower is having to move in, right? And so it's just fascinating to see that. I, I, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I, I think, you know, you, one has to try to separate people who were using this language in a kind of distanced, this is good rhetoric way from people who are touched by it. And I would say that, that the people with the closest connection to kind of evangelicalism, Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, feel the force of these connections in the way evangelicals tend to feel the immediacy of the world you know, it is alive here. B the Bible is alive in this place um, in a way that I think Catholics and, and really, you know, m m most m uh, mainline Protestants and, and probably most Jews, you know, it's sort of, well, that was a long time ago. We're dealing with this now. But, but I, I, th I think, you know, Carter feels very strongly, rightly or wrongly, I mean, you know, what everyone makes of the blood of Abraham. Um, the immediacy of this, and I just, I, th I think one has to sort of get at the, the, the personal spiritual biographies of these people to, to, to get a fix on the question. See, I also think with Islam in, in America, the, the whole long story of other groups is telescoped over a very short period of time, and that the meaning of Islam in our politics has changed over time. Um, it's worth remembering that in 2000, George W. Bush probably got, it's hard to estimate the Islamic vote because they don't loom big enough in polls, but I think most uh, analysts accept that Bush probably got about three quarters of the Muslim vote in the United States. Now, some of that was seen as a backlash against Joe Lieberman being on the Democratic ticket, but some of it was that Bush went out of his way to appeal to Muslims uh, in Michigan and in the other states they were in. Uh, famously, in one of the debates, he said he opposed the use of secret evidence uh, and, you know, in trials, which was something that any non-Muslim heard and said, yeah, well, why wouldn't you be against secret evidence? It was actually a term of art. It was something that meant a lot to the Muslim community because it was being used against them. And then you jump four years, and with the Iraq war, uh, you know, so in that period, Muslims were seen as social conservatives with a lot of sympathy for broadly conservative ideas like Bush's jump four years, the Iraq war happens, the Muslim vote shifts overwhelmingly the other way and has been on the other side ever since. So that's, that's A. B, um, you have the backlash produced by 9-11 among some Americans but also the backlash against immigration so that Muslims, like Catholics about 100 years ago, have to deal simultaneously with just a general anti-immigrant backlash of which they are a part uh, and the specifics of 9-11. And then the other complicating factor, as your question uh, suggested, is that I think on the conservative side of politics, there was a real split, even though they may have supported the same policies, like such as the invasion of, the, of Iraq, 
Um, there is one branch of conservatism that is a real clash of civilizations and is highly critical of Islam and sees Islam as totalitarian. The other side wanted a new Cold War against terrorism, but wanted to be very careful about separating the terrorist Muslims, if you will, you know, these are in quotation marks, from, you know, the, the other Muslims who were peace-minded. And Bush constantly went out of his way knowing we needed Muslim allies as a nation, um, and because I think he was opposed to bigotry. I mean, I always say I disagree with George Bush on lots of things. The singularly most honorable thing he did was to go visit the Islamic Center in D.C. after 9-11 and give this really strong speech against anti-Muslim prejudice. Um, so Bush was on the other side of that. So I, I think it's, uh, I, I think the the trying to sort of understand in a very, over a very short period of time, the sort of all the contradictions in reactions to uh, Muslims in the US is, is a really hard and interesting enterprise. Mm -hmm.